I'm glad the choir hasn't been practicing very much. What a beautiful piece of work. Thank you for that gift. Let's pray together. We ask now for the capacity to hear you deeply, O God. To listen beyond the words of Scripture and beyond the sermon of the preacher, beyond the music of the choir, to that word that reverberates not only in this room, but in our hearts, individually and as a community of faith. May faith be deepened and sweetened even by our gathering this day, we pray. In the name of Christ, amen. Well, preachers are supposed to have good news. I mean, that's what uh, the word gospel literally means, good news. But what about bad news? And can we talk about the good news and the bad news at the same time? It sort of sounds like a setup to a joke, right? I've got good news and I've got bad news. Pitcher and catcher were talking one day. Pitcher said, I sure hope there's baseball in heaven because that's all I really know and love. Well, that very evening, the catcher died. And a week or so later, reappeared to the, to the pitcher and said to him, I've got good news and I've got bad news. Give me the good news, the pitcher said. The good news is there is baseball in heaven. Well, that's great. What is the bad news? The bad news is you're scheduled to pitch on Saturday in heaven. <laughs> or maybe you want the bad news first, like the lawyer who said to his client, I've got good news and bad news. The client said, oh, give me the bad news first. He said, well, the blood test did confirm that it was your DNA that was found at the murder site. Oh, said the client, I, I, I'm doomed. What could possibly be the good news? He said, well, that same test showed that your cholesterol is down to about 130. <laughs> Do you notice now how no matter whether the bad news comes first or second, the bad news always seems to trump the good news, doesn't it? which may feel to you the way life works, that the bad news outweighs the good news, that somehow it dominates. This reading from Mark 6 is an interesting little interlude. Herod has confused Jesus and Jesus' disciples with John and John's disciples. And so it becomes an explanation. And we get this explanation about John the Baptist and what happened to him, and it becomes for us a tale of good news and bad news and good news. John the Baptist, of course, was the one who was born not long before Jesus. He was the one who kicked in his mother Elizabeth's womb when Jesus was in Mary's womb. He was the one who was the forerunner to Jesus, who... Uh, said the words of the prophet of old, uh, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight the way in the wilderness, prepare the highway for our God. He's the one when Jesus came to the Jordan, pointed at Jesus and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
He was the one who got to baptize Jesus, even though he said, I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. He must increase, then I must decrease. He's the one that Jesus later said, there's been no greater man born of woman than John. This is a guy whose life is filled with good news, gospel. And yet he's beheaded. In a political power struggle, John is beheaded. I know we know this story, but it's really not what you expect, is it? Most of us expect that if we do good in life, good things will turn out. Good things will happen. We'll get some kind of reward, some kind of compensation. Somehow we'll be exempt from the bad things in life, even though we know it's not that way. Even though there's evidence in the Bible to the contrary and evidence on our lives to the contrary, we know that being good doesn't necessarily mean that we'll have good news throughout our life. And yet, most of us, when we're pushed right up against it, when we come to that kind of primal moment when we feel the fear creeping in, we'll raise our hands to heaven as the psalmist of old did and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What did I do? Why me? Why is this happening to me? Maybe John the Baptist even felt that way. While in prison, he sent his followers to ask Jesus the question, now, are you the one that we've been waiting for? Or should we look for another? Because John is in prison. He's not experiencing any good news in his life. He's in prison for questioning Herod's marriage, which may have less to do with sex and ethics and more to do with politics, consolidating power and abusing power, marrying his brother and competitor's wife in a way to pull power together to use toward his own ends. And John the Baptist announces, this is wrong. This is not God's way. And so Herodias, Herod's wife, hates John the Baptist. She wants him dead. And for her, him being dead is worth more than even half of Herod's kingdom. When the opportunity comes, she takes his head on a platter. It is all about control. Someone wrote recently that when control is at stake, the powerful will do anything to win. They'll cheat customers, betray employees, rig the legal system, buy academic evidence, cheapen democracy, distort data, and even kill a man for speaking the truth. It's bad news. It's bad news. Here's a reality that I think we experience, but we don't often name in church. Not everything happens for a reason. Everything that happens does not happen for a reason. There's a popular blog right now titled 10 Clichés That Christians Should Avoid. It's really pretty interesting. Some of the top 10 are things like 
Avoid saying this question, if you were to die tonight, where would you spend eternity? You've heard it, right? Which implies that the Christian life is all about heaven when we die, or this one, when someone dies. Don't say, well, she's in a better place now. Don't say that. But the number one cliche to avoid is this one. Everything happens for a reason. The reality is there is bad news in the world. Bad news in the world. In a good world, bad things happen outside of God's will. And the last thing we need to do is blame God. Rather than blaming God, the Christian is invited to look for God in the midst of the bad news. The psalmist of old said, Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for I know that you're with me. Look for God. Sometimes we get to see the outcome. Sometimes the good news finally does arrive. But there are those times, as in the case of John the Baptist, where the person doesn't get to see the outcome, doesn't get to experience the good news, doesn't live to see that good wins in the end. From our vantage point, we see it. 2,000 years later, we sit in this room. John the Baptist is one of our saints in the window. We get to celebrate him every year at Advent when we say the words of John, prepare the way of the Lord. Or when someone is baptized and we remember John and Jesus going into the waters of the Jordan. Or when we remember John speaking the truth to the, to the powers. But John didn't get to see it. John didn't get to see the outcome and he didn't get to know. I think Jesus anticipated this when he said in his Beatitudes, you are blessed when you were persecuted for my name's sake, for great will your reward be in heaven. Not necessarily here, but in heaven. That requires from us, from John and from us, the faith to see beyond the moment. The faith to see even beyond the horizon of the future. To trust that there is this mercy and energy, this one who can take what happens in our lives and bring it for good. Even after we're gone. With God, good news might be bad news. But ultimately, it is good news because we are connected to God. I think that's why we gather on Sundays. Not just to tip our hats to God, but to get that deep connection that lets us walk through valleys and fear no evil. The other person in the story, of course, is King Herod. It's his birthday, he throws himself a party, and he starts showing off a little bit. He brings in his stepdaughter, and she dances, and it must have been quite a, quite a little hoochie-coo of a dance because he makes a big old promise based on this dance. He says, wow, 
Now that was a dance. You can have anything you want up to half of my kingdom. And now he's caught. When she, guided by her mother, asked for John's head on a platter, he's caught by his own pride. He has to comply. He doesn't want to be one of those flip-floppers. You know how we feel about those kind of folks. So you've got to, you've got to live up to this, Herod. You made the promise. And so he has to do something that he deeply regrets. And now he's haunted by guilt. If you were a Baptist, we would say he's under conviction. This guilt is bad news. When you feel guilty, you feel anxious. You feel wrong. You feel haunted. You just don't feel at home in your own skin. Guilt's bad news. But it doesn't ultimately have to be bad news. The bad news of guilt is also an invitation to come forward to the good news. Guilt is our soul's built-in warning system that tells us when we're entering into territory that's dangerous and destructive to ourselves and to others and to our relationship with God and God's creation, and it speaks to us. It knows our name, it speaks our language, and it wakes us up at night while we try to sleep and it nags us while we're trying to have fun and it disturbs our peace and so we try to avoid it or deny it or hide it. I don't have to say the words Joe Paterno and Penn State University's administration in the wake of the child abuse scandal to remind us of how guilt tries to avoid or deny or hide. And so we try to squelch and drown out the guilt with other noises or treat that message as a kind of just a, an annoyance, not really something we need to tend to, sort of like our neighbor's car alarm that goes off in the middle of the night. It's just an annoyance. It's nothing. Or, or guilt can be that horn that sounds when we're navigating the troubled waters and the fog comes in so deep that we cannot see. Guilt can be the horn that warns us, don't come here. Danger here. Destruction here. Turn and Go a different direction. It's a calling to a different way and to a new beginning. And here it is for Herod, this opportunity to turn bad news into good news. He killed the forerunner of the gospel, the good news, and he can't bring John the Baptist back. He's living in the bad news of this guilt, but here's an opportunity for him to start again, to change and turn and trust that there's one who can do something both good and new. Good news. 
Later, the Apostle Paul would say, we know that God can work all things, all things for good for those who love God, for those who who trust God. I know this is what you expect to hear on Sunday. It's sort of our usual Sunday fare, but think about this. The claim that bad news can be turned into good news, what is that? Is that some kind of religious alchemy? Is it really possible? Can bad news be transformed into good news? A couple years ago, I read the book by Dostoevsky called Crime and Punishment. I mainly read it so that I could stand before you today and say I've read Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment. It's the story of a man early in the book who murders a woman for money. The rest of the book is about how he lives with his guilt his fear, his sense of who am I? How do I, how do I live in, inside of my own skin? I had that very experience when I was 15 years old. My parents, God bless them, left me home alone for a weekend. And I don't have to tell you the rest of this story, Right? Things got a little bit out of hand. I was just going to have a few friends over, but word got out. And the next thing I know, there are cars parked up and down the street. The guys from the wrestling team were there, and they started wrestling and flipping each other. And this coffee table that my brother had sent my parents from Japan just got smashed into a million pieces. There were people out in the yard. It was I was actually grateful when the neighbor came over and shut things down. And I spent the rest of the weekend cleaning and repairing and trying to hide the evidence. When mom and dad returned, they, of course, asked, well, did everything go all right? Oh, sure, yeah. What happened to the coffee table, they asked. It's just the weirdest thing. I I set a Coke on it, and it just smashed into a million pieces. (laughs) Why are the pictures upside down in the hallway? (laughs) The strangest, a sonic boom came by and those pictures came down and I was on pins and needles. They'd call me to supper and my heart would jump up into my throat and finally about four days later when my mom called me into the kitchen holding a bottle of beer that she had found in the vegetable bin in the very back. (laughs) There was a kind of relief. Because you don't want to live outside of your skin. You don't want to carry that around to come clean, to own the sin, to get back into your life, and to... Pay whatever debt, but to move from bad news to good news. To move from estrangement with yourself and 
your family and God to move from that to good news of connection and love and inclusion. Herod's got that opportunity. Unfortunately, what Herod decides to do is double down on his sin. He compounds his guilt by allowing Jesus our Lord to be crucified. That's his story. But what about us? It is for us a matter of trusting and maybe even moving beyond the limits of our sight to believe that there's one who cares, who forgives, to believe that there's no sins we could have committed that will ultimately and finally estrange us from God, to believe, not just to say it, but to believe that God's transforming love revealed in Jesus Christ overcomes everything. So the question in the end is, which will set the agenda for your life? Bad news or good news? Let's pray together. The ritual and rhythm of this morning's worship is in many ways the prelude to this moment, God, when you speak and we listen and we respond in faith. Liberate the guilty. Forgive the sinner. Comfort those who feel estranged. And heal us just as you and the disciples healed those long ago. Heal us from our sins and allow us to be the men and women you dream us to be. Individually and as this faith community. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.